You're listening to the very first season ever of the Lifestyle Company Podcast, hosted by Kristen Forgion, designer, public speaker, and creator of Organic Desert Living. If you like talking design, business, and life without the filter, you came to the right place. In just six years, Kristen grew a one-woman side hustle into a multi-million dollar creative business. And it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. Armed with grit and hard work, Kristen comes to you unapologetically with some tough love. They say wine is cheaper than therapy, and lucky for you, we've got that last part covered. So pour up and let's get to it. Hey guys, it's me. We're old friends now, three episodes in. I am so over the moon with all the feedback that we've gotten from you guys. I can't believe I'm a real podcast host. I feel like I say this every episode, and maybe you'll get sick of me saying that. Maybe y'all get sick of me saying that, but um, it's amazing. Podcasting is so cool and different, and I'm so glad I did it. It's so much work. Have I mentioned how much work it is? It's a lot of work. Um, but I love it and I am seeing such a difference in the way that you guys are communicating back with me and such a difference in the questions that I'm being asked and what you're asking of me, which I am totally game for and I'm so happy and excited to help. And I think we talked a long time ago on social, if you're an avid follower or um, you engage with me a lot on social about business coaching and kind of what my goals are and this is really helping me to figure out if I think I'm the right person to coach people from a business standpoint. And that's one of the reasons why I did it is because I felt like it was a really great stepping stone to try to establish if between all these design-related things that our business encompasses, if I had it in me to be able to take what's in my brain and all the things that I've learned in the last six years and put them out in a way that I can actually coach other people. It's it's an art. It's a whole nother profession really and it is it is a profession. So before I started even thinking about what those services would look like, I wanted to see how it went and how it felt for me and if I really liked it and if I felt like I could give you guys enough meat and enough content. And it has been cathartic and emotional and amazing and challenging and educational, and I'm really, really liking it. So even just four episodes in, or really three, because this is the beginning of the fourth, I'm loving how receptive you guys are. And it is such an honor, truly, to know that my voice matters to you guys, both literally and figuratively, because here I am with my voice through your headphones or earbuds or your Bluetooth or whatever. So I'm really impressed with with you all and how you're showing up for me and with me and I'm proud and I'm I'm proud that I've done this and I'm excited to see where it goes. So, episode 4 this is going to be another good one. And can we just talk about influencer fraud episode 3? For all of you guys who listened to episode 3, Oh my God, that episode came out so easily. It just like flowed, I think because it's a really hot topic in my world. And as soon as I get going and I could actually organize my thoughts in a way that made sense, it just came out with a vengeance. And the reception that we have gotten on influencer fraud is all over the board. So many people saying I had no clue what this was. I had one person who wrote me on Instagram and said, I thought influencer fraud was when someone took one of your photos, like one of the images of your work and posted it without your consent or without crediting. I thought that's what influencer fraud was. No, that's just theft. Um, but it's very common in in the digital age that we live in. And 
part of it comes with the territory. I don't think it's a practice that I want to engage in or um, push forward, but it happens. But no, influencer fraud is a whole nother thing. And it is like an underground world that I am so happy to be able to shed some light on. So if you haven't listened to episode three, go back. It's called Influencer Fraud. It's all about my personal experience and our business's personal experience with a, an influencer and how it affected us and how much money it costs my my firm and uh, steps that you can use to make sure that you do not fall victim to it. And it's not just for business owners. If you are a marketer or if you are someone who works in a business that is responsible for social media or influencer partnerships, it's definitely a good one for you to listen to. Because I have spoken to some people who that is their legit job and they have not been educated by their companies on what to look for. They are too busy doing their job job, which is going out and attracting relationships and making things happen and and aren't really responsible for the audit side of it or for the result side of it other than setting things up in the way that they think they should. So it's it's a really great episode and I'm so glad that we did it. And like I said, it was hard to do it, but I'm really glad that we did. So now we're into episode four. So this is how to attract the right clients and knowing your worth. And this one, this is probably the topic I'm I'm thinking as I'm saying this. This is probably the topic that we got the most topic requests for all the times that we've said, hey, what do you want us to talk about on the podcast? It is usually how how to attract the right clients, um, some iteration of like how you f- how you find your authentic self, how you have packaged your business to be the way it is, how you keep it all together, all of those things. And I think I think what everyone is actually getting to is exactly that: how to attract the right clients and how to make sure that you're charging appropriately for your time and efforts and all of that. And It is a very sensitive subject and topic and one that I truly consider if you can break through is like the gift of all gifts because it is a game changer, a game changer in being an entrepreneur. Whether you are a one-woman show, whether you own a big business, whether you are a makeup artist, whether you do network marketing, you sell oils, you are a nanny, you are whatever you do, if There is some relationship where there is a client and a provider. I think that figuring this out is truly a game changer and it it just it it changes everything. So I'm really excited to talk about it and give you my position on it. As usual, we're going with the questions. You know where I am. If you've listened before, I'm in my sound booth. Um, what am I wearing? Today I'm wearing our vintage maxi dress. It is from the shop. If you don't follow the shop, you guys, please, a lot of you follow me, but we have 16,000 followers at the shop and 43,000 on the Lifestyle Co. page. So that's like more than half of you don't follow us on the shop. So the shop page is at Lifestyled Co. Shop. And there's all different content on the shop page than what's on my page. And Kelly and I, our marketing manager, are working really diligently to make sure that that's the case. And it's not just all of our clothes and all of our merchandise. There's a lot of different fun activities and stuff. Gosh, that sounds like a freaking kids like cartoon. But you know what I mean? We've got our playlists on there, which is always requested from people. So the playlist that we play in the shop, we we have figured out this whole vibe thing of the shop in its little teeny mightiness. So those are on there. We've got some interior design templates that are floating around stories. So you can put whether, you know, this or that, all that kind of stuff. It's it's been a really cool journey to watch Kelly and help guide her in transitioning that shop 
profile into what it is now. So I love that now we have two ways of connecting with you guys in a little bit different voices. The Lifestyle Co. page is my page, and that is what I use primarily. And then Kelly is is doing the Lifestyle Shop, the Lifestyle Co. Shop page with my involvement as well. So if you don't follow us there, make sure you do. And you can get this dress. So I love it. It's so comfy. We all have it. Literally every single person in our office, I want to say, has it. It is out of stock right now, but restocking next week. And one of the things I love the most about it is it doesn't show all the edges and grooves and dimples that most of us have. So it's just a great summer, spring dress that you can layer. You can wear with flip-flops. You can wear with with sneakers or not sneakers, um, you know, vans, little, little like slip-on shoes. So it's a really good piece. So I love it. What I'm eating. I have been eating, as I mentioned, a ton of Trader Joe's. And yesterday, last night, I made this really yummy, like modified spinach kind of thing. Um, really spinach pasta thing. It's brown rice noodles from Trader Joe's, which I really like. Someone also asked me on Instagram if I like the brown rice noodles better than the banza or bonza. I do like these noodles better. I feel like the consistency is a little bit more toward a regular noodle, like in the way that feels, like the texture, versus the banza or bonza someone tell me how to say it, um, has kind of like a stickiness to it. I don't know. It's kind of kind of interesting. But so those with ground turkey, a jar of Rao's sauce, which is my favorite clean like pasta sauce, sauteed onions, you kind of put it all together and then you throw the spinach on top, let it cook down a little bit and then add Parmesan. It makes kind of an easy bowl type of thing and is pretty clean as I mentioned. So it definitely cured my pasta craving last night. I also had a big ass glass of Malbec with it, which was fantastic. What I'm reading, I started reading Influencer Mark, or I'm sorry, I started reading this book called Influencer, and it's by Brittany Hennessy. Um, and by reading this time, I actually mean listening on Audible. So I don't know if you guys are on Audible, but it's an Amazon company, and I absolutely love it. What I love most about reading is not actually the, the part about sitting down and holding a book, which I know is what a lot of people love about it, because that's obviously wonderful too, but it's kind of not very realistic in my life. So I love that when I'm listening to a book, I don't have to be sitting still and I can still get all the great knowledge. And especially when you guys are recommending books to me, which a ton of you have. So thank you. When you guys are recommending books to me, I can get through those books so much faster when I'm listening because I can pop my earbuds in, do it at home, do it in the car. Um, I just get a lot more more flexibility with it. So I really, really like that. But Influencer by Brittany Hennessy. It was such a good book. So many really great points. Very different than my points that I talked about in episode two, which is how to use Instagram for business, but really good points. And I think coupled together, I'm, I'm, I loved hearing what she had to say. And her book was more about as an influencer, if you're already somewhat established, how to take it to that, that next level. So 10,000 to 20,000 followers or more and how how to keep pushing it forward without getting stale and bored and regurgitating content and all that stuff and unnecessary amount of times really. So Influencer by Brittany Hennessy, I really loved it. Recent face palm. This week I'm in the clear. Don't worry, I'll be at an airport again soon and will likely slip up for sure. On the radar. Oh my god, we've gotten so many amazing applicants for our open positions. I'm so stoked. I kind of feel like of all the positions we've hired for, we have gotten the most amount of amazing, highly qualified, really stylish, great people that want to be our design associate or our marketing intern. So that's really exciting. It's always kind of scary when you go to hire people to to put your company and yourself out there and take the time to interview, and especially in the way that we do 
it's kind of scary to see what what comes back. So I always think it's a really good test and kind of testament to the health of your business when you get really great applicants. It means that you're in good health, both from a brand standpoint to a perception standpoint to an organizational standpoint, everything about it. So it's a compliment to us. So thank you so much. One thing that is surprising to me, though, I'm going to say it. For all the amazing people that we've gotten, we have gotten some people that I feel like are probably great, but I can't even get past the first sentence of their cover letter, let alone their resumes, because they're like all over the place. Like, is resume building slash etiquette dead? Is that something that they still teach in school? As I'm saying that, I'm thinking like, did I learn that, those skills in school? I don't necessarily think I learned that in school. I think my mom was, was like a psycho about resumes. And interestingly, I have turned into a psycho about resumes and even seven, gosh, like 10 years ago when she was looking to get back into the workforce. No, no, no. That's probably like five years ago. Like five years ago when she was going to go back to work for a bit, she was sending me her resume and I was tweaking it and I was wordsmithing and changing some formatting and stuff. So it's interesting how specifically because most of these applicants are are young. They're young people. They're like under 25. And I mean, I'm 35, so it's not like I'm that much older. But that 10 years is a long, a long time. That's a big difference. So I'm just surprised because with the influx of technology and now you can get these really cool resume templates on Etsy. You can have an Etsy designer. I mean, that's just the first thing that comes to mind is Etsy, but I feel like everyone probably knows a graphic designer. Like, don't be afraid for any of these people that that maybe want to work for us, are ever going to apply with us or any other creative company or any company in general. Don't be afraid to go the extra mile to make your resume really stand out. Like, don't put it on hot pink paper if anyone even prints their resume anymore. I don't know. But the resumes that have an identity that that are clear and concise and simple are definitely the ones that we tend to look at more. And like, you got to spell our business name right. You got to spell my name right. You got to spell things right. Like spell check, triple check, send it to a friend for proofreading. Because as much as it could totally be an accident, it's like that's your shot. That's like the one shot that you get. You are basically putting your whole entire body, all of your talent, everything that you have to give into this one piece of paper. So it's got to look good. So give yourself a personal brand. Think about it. Take the time to do it. I cannot tell you how many cover letters we got where one, you could tell that they were just sending out generic cover letters and there's like nothing specific to our business about it. Oh, it's such a letdown. I'm like, oh my gosh, this person looks great. And I actually read the resume before the cover letter. I know, maybe that's a bad thing. All the HR people out there are probably like freaking out. Elizabeth, my girlfriend Elizabeth, if you're listening, is that wrong? I don't know. Maybe I'm setting myself up for failure. But I read the resume first because I want to see like, where do you work now? How long have you been there? What skills are you putting on there? We got one one applicant from an interior designer And she summed up her job. Her title is interior designer. She summed up her job in three bullet points. Like, I mean, simple, great, but there is no way that if you're a working interior designer, your job has three, three, three tasks. Or you can sum up your job in three bullet points. It was like, I felt bad for her. I was like, come on. I know you do. I know you do more than this because I'm a designer and I know what I do and there's no way I could sum it up even at the most basic level into three bullet points. So I don't know. I could totally go on a rant here and I was thinking about, I was thinking about 
putting on Instagram Rachel's resume and her design board that she sent us and Kylie's resume and all the stuff that she sent us because obviously you know that Rachel and Kylie are like, you know, two of my my right hands, um, my right, my left hand, whatever. We're a design team and I just think it would be so interesting to see what you guys think about that. But they were both kind of like, uh, do you have to? <laughs> so I got to talk to them a little bit a little bit more about that and see if they actually want me to. But both of theirs were amazing and rock star and normal and approachable and conversational and honest and great and well-rounded. And here they are. So I, I don't know. I thought it was really interesting. So I still might do that. So absolute death in the moment. Let's just sum it up here and say it's all the effing showers at the 75th build. Holy balls, you guys. They are insane. Like, we knew they would be good, but we designed that tile scheme six months ago, and to see it all come to life is straight death. I mean, it's just death. We get on site, and we, like, come around the corner squealing and probably scare the shit out of poor Victor, who is now Insta-famous, by the way. I got so many people like, is Victor available for hire? Can Victor come to Oklahoma? Can Victor da-da-da? And the funny thing is, his real name's not even Victor, you guys. That's how under wraps I have to keep him. No, I'm kidding. I think his real name is Victor. I mean, when we scream Victor, he responds. So to us, he's Victor. Um, but Victor is not available for hire. He is exclusively our builders. He's not ours. He's he's our builders. Um, but he's so amazing. And that guy is so meticulous. And he knows just how we like it. And I could, I mean, I'm very married. But I could, like, kiss him when I come around the corner and see showers like we were showing you guys this week. Oh, it's so exciting and wonderful. And so that's been really fun to see. I, I really actually think he kind of loves it because when we come around squealing, he always has like music on and we come around and he's almost like dropped tile a couple times. And we're like, oh my God, Victor, mucho pesos, Victor, te amo, muy muerte. Like I'm, you know, my my Spanglish is very, very limited, but he smiles and he loves it. So it's, it's kind of become a thing and it's fun. And he always knows that we want to take pictures. So he like gathers his stuff, like his knee pads and he gets all his stuff and like gets out of the way so we can get a shot. I love it. It's, it's just, we have really cool jobs. Um, into the episode. Do you guys even remember what the episode topic was? <laughs> I do. I could keep just rambling, but let's get into the episode. It is how to attract the right clients and knowing your worth. And like I said, if I can help you guys to figure this out, I think you'll be really happy and I will be really happy. I always like to tell you a little bit about why I decided on this episode or topic and how it's affected me. In this case, aside from all of the feedback that we got on people asking us to talk about this, I literally remember the day, like the exact day, what I was wearing, what I was, where I was sitting, the whole thing that I decided I was done working with assholes to be completely frank. And I had to figure out a way to attract better clients. And it was a turning point that I'll remember forever. For me, I think it was an all over shift, a pivot. We always talk about pivot. A pivot in my business from the mindset that I had toward employees to our finances, um, to hiring, all the way to the mindset that I had with clients and my in my own and how I was gonna be a leader and a boss and a business owner and a designer. And so, attracting the right clients was the catalyst to that. And I can successfully tell you from the other side that it was the one thing that absolutely changed my business, sent us into a different financial position, sent us into a different type of client, sent us into a different type of project, uh, all of those things. And it, I personally think 
it all stemmed from attracting the right clients. And I don't think I knew that. I don't think I knew that until years, maybe not years. I guess I could say I started seeing changes. Maybe our projects are long. So even even a single room takes a couple months. So you know, three-ish months, I started to s- thinking like, wow, you know, I really haven't had any conflict <laughs> from a client perspective in like many months. That's really interesting. How did I do that? And then you kind of start going back. And I don't think I even knew like what to Google. I, I don't think I even knew at the time that this is what I was trying to do or or I didn't know what to call it and know enough to Google it and know enough to listen to a podcast like this on how I can take steps. So I'm hoping that me and my experience in sharing this with you guys will stop you from making some of the mistakes that I did with a little bit of that, like you can only learn from someone else's mistakes so many times. So since I've come to learn that this whole like thing, we'll call it, centers around attracting the right clients and knowing your worth, they go hand in hand in so many ways, ways that you might not even realize. This episode is for anyone in a freelance or creative business, as I've mentioned, any business really. If you are a responsible party for any sort of relationship, this will help you. I feel like I'm thinking about all of my friends that are still in corporate jobs and most jobs have a client and a provider relationship. You are providing a service or a product or a something and you have a client, whether your client is a consumer or you sell business to business or whatever. In some way, there is likely a relationship in your business. And I do think the the one key thing is you need to have enough authority and enough backup, we'll call it, to shift things. So if, if you're a person in your business that isn't a huge decision maker or isn't isn't responsible for some of those key decisions in being able to clear your path to attract the right clients that might be challenging but you never know where you'll be in 6 months so still listen what you're going to learn specifically in this episode how to set your business up to attract the right clients specifically i'm talking in branding social media and just all around like having your shit together i think it's really important to have your shit together if you're trying to attract attract the right clients and we'll talk about that understanding who those right people are for you personally and for your business, how to establish your break-even point and your reach pricing. So that's a little bit of a pricing model that I have come up with, or maybe I'm not the first person to come up with it, but it's what I use and it's what what I call it. How to establish your non-negotiables, also very, 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 very important. And then how to be okay with business that walks. So that's another kind of challenging lesson that if you can figure that out, you will be golden. So when I started Googling themes around these topics to get a broad understanding of the type of information that's out there, I found a lot of the same info. And it's good info. Some of it's really good. And some of it's just really basic, like really, really basic. Most of it didn't talk about the B word, branding. And most of it didn't give very many tactics. Not all, but most. And if they did give tactics, it was like three tactics and then buy a $99 course, which, you know, it is what it is. It's fine. It's fine. But I have found that in three episodes, you guys really like tactics. You like for me to tell you what I did and point you in the right direction so that you can adapt what I've done and use it in your own life. And I totally get that and understand that. And I'm the same way. So I like that we're like-minded people. Are you seeing where I'm going with this? So... 
I decided when I was going to record this episode that I wanted to make sure that there was meat, that there was some very actionable items that you can start implementing today, and that you didn't have to buy a $99 course. (laughs) That's the goodness of podcasts, right? And no disrespect to any of the people that are out there selling courses. If that's your business, I think I'm quite sure that there is a ton of ton of information once you're in that course and probably a lot more in depth than those three steps maybe that you had on your landing page on Pinterest or whatever and way more in depth than I'm going to get. So I definitely think that there's a place for both just so we're clear on that. So also remember, I can only teach my experience, especially because I do not have a PhD or even a bachelor's degree for that matter in anything. I just know enough to be dangerous, and I like to think that I've been paying enough attention to this whole entrepreneur thing to learn a little bit along the way. And all of these points are what has led me to having some control, not total control, because you can never control everything, but some control in our business and with our clients, which ultimately is still and hopefully always will be our bread and butter. Design is what I love. And I have been fortunate enough to establish some other streams of revenue that I definitely want to get more in depth in for you guys here on this podcast. But for the most part, design and being a full service interior design firm is what we do. That's our bread and butter. That's our main function as a business. And because of that, we are 100% dependent on clients. And like I said, most businesses are. Many, many businesses are. So it is of the utmost importance that we understand our clients and they understand us. So number one. Oh, and before I get into this, note, everything that I talk about is on our show notes. So I record and then I send Kelly my notes and then Kelly puts those into this really beautiful, visually stunning page on our podcast page where you can go through episode by episode and read if you haven't listened to the episode or reference back what I'm talking about. So when we're sharing links and stuff, that's all in the show notes. So I want to make she's, make sure she's not doing that for nothing. <laughs> so go to the show notes so that you can get all this info. Okay, number one, what is your most natural way of being and working? Are you thinking? Did you hear all that silence? Is that like such a no-no in podcast world? I don't know. Did you guys go to adjust your volume? (laughs) Maybe you did. I don't know. I wanted you to have a minute to think. It's a rhetorical question, but what's your most natural way of being and working? I think if you can answer that question, that is going to get you one step further to attracting the right clients. If you don't know how you like to be and how you like to work, how the hell are you going to attract clients that, that know that? right? So for me, my most natural way of being and working is like this. I am not an overly polished person. I am not a formal person. I am not a stuffy person. I am not a sit behind a computer and respond to emails all day person. I do wish I had more time for that, but I am not a... um. Like, oh, like, I, like I said, overly formal person. I, I write emails the way I speak. I use slang. I use emojis. I say fuck. I, I do all that stuff. So for me, if I was trying to go after like a very proper client, that might be weird. You know, like that might not work. And so I think it's really important to have a hard look in the mirror and really think about how your most natural way of being and working is. And for me, that led me directly to 
the buzzword of the moment in kind of all things, everything, authenticity. I decided at about maybe two years in that I was just going to be authentic, however that that worked. And it doesn't mean that I can't turn on the polish and it doesn't mean that we have loose business practices because there's a total difference. And I always like to say specifically with new hires, which is a theme right now in our office, like don't mistake our casual atmosphere for a lack of organization or a lack of accountability or any of a lack of customer service. Like don't don't mistake any of the rosé and like the, the chill vibes for not having our shit together because our shit is together. And so that, you know, with, with a little crazy mixed in, of course. But so I think you can have both. And for in the beginning, when you're trying to establish your business identity, it's really hard because you have so many different people giving you opinions and you're kind of taking every piece of business that walks walks in and you're 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 just trying to kind of navigate through the bumpers. I think of it as like a bowling alley, right? So you're you like throw the ball down the lane and you're just trying to navigate between those bumpers and like get how about let's hit one pin? Like getting a strike is like kind of far down the line for most people. If you listen to this podcast, maybe not as far down the line. That's what I'm what I'm hoping for. But it's kind of far down the line. So you're just trying to stay within the bumpers. So by understanding what you are and how you most naturally can communicate and present yourself in a business atmosphere, it's going to help you. The easiest exercise for that is just start writing some words down. Don't worry about sentences. Don't worry about paragraphs. Don't worry about form. Just write words, descriptive words that describe who you are and how you want to work. And be honest with yourself. Like, I don't think there's any person in the history of life that would say that I'm patient. Like, I am not patient. So if I was trying to put out the patience vibes to my clients, like, that's not me. Good thing, though, I have a team now that can help me in some of those instances. So, and that's more kind of on the hiring side, but really understand what is your most natural way of being and working. Once you get that first principle down, that will help you figure out how you you can be and how you should be authentic. I also think, think about your time. If If you're running a freelance business or you're running a design business or you're running a photography business and your main function in your life and your family and your household is being a mom or a dad or whatever, you obviously can't dedicate 12 hours a day to growing your business. So because of that, you need to understand how many hours a day you have that you can do this. That would be your most natural way of working. So your number one priority is your family. If your number one priority is your family, then obviously your business would have to come second. I I can't say this isn't obvious, but obviously, of course, my number one priority is my family. However, I have never struggled with wanting to stay home with my with my kids. So I always knew that I would once I had my babies, I would come back to work. And for me, it has been this business. But that's not the way it is for everybody. So it goes both ways, whether you're a working mom, whether you're a stay at home mom, whether you're a, you know, a working dad, a stay at home dad, however that works for you. You just have to figure out how that falls in your family and in your household. And that that also will help you to understand what kind of client you should be attracting. Does that make sense? God, again, I wish that I could like tap, like put one of you through to like tell me I'm on the right track. But hopefully, hopefully I am. Number two, what's your value add proposition and why slash how, enunciate the slash, slash how are you different than the rest of the pack? So this is a huge one, specifically in design and photography and selling mascara, makeup and selling oils and network marketing and isogenics and every other thing that you could possibly sell out there. How, how and why are you different? 
this might be, I don't know, more important than number number one. And I think I may have even had it as number one until I put number one in. There has to be something different about you. You got to find what it is. I hope number one helps you find what it is. For me, I think one of our main differences among the rest of the designers in the market is we specifically market our aesthetic. Our aesthetic is called organic desert living. I am not willing to compromise on that. Does that mean that I won't do, um, what, what would be a good example? Does that mean I won't do something traditional? I'll 100% do something traditional, but it's not going to be traditional like tradition traditional is. It's going to be organic desert living traditional, and there is absolutely room for both. But my unique value proposition in this market as a designer and as a design firm is we market our aesthetic as organic desert living. It's easy to understand. It's easy for clients to identify. It has a very specific look. And so for that reason, that became our value add proposition. That is why we are different. I also think that we are very open on social media. I am very, very direct. And I don't really, I I don't hide a lot. I live pretty honestly. I, I let a lot of people into what my life is. And because of that, there has been a profound connection with people on social media, with our clients. Um, And I'm honest, maybe TMI, maybe I share too much. I don't know. But, you know, I tell people like, hey, I have sick kids at home. I can't get to you today. Or, hey, I'm on my period and my cramps are so freaking bad. I'm puking right now. Can I call you back? You know, like, and so because of that there, and again, this doesn't work for everyone. But for me and my personality, back to number one, why it's so important to understand your most natural way of being and working, it has worked for me. And they all go hand in hand. It's one big synergy between all of these things. So find out what your your value add proposition is. And it very well probably isn't and shouldn't be that you have your own aesthetic. Or maybe it is. You've got to find what your thing is. Maybe you do things differently. Maybe your design aesthetic in general, just the, the projects that you put out are different. You need to be able to, to hone in on that and take that bull by the horns and like capture it and make that kind of what you, you, almost your mission statement. Like Organic Desert Living has kind of become our mission statement. We have a client creed on our website and that's another one. I added that client creed right around the same exact time that I, actually 100% the same time that I was deciding I'm not gonna work with assholes anymore. And between that client creed and, and Organic Desert Living, I thought about making a mission statement and then I was like, I don't know what's left to be said. Like, Our mission is organic desert living and we're going to do it in an authentic way and we're going to be normal and approachable and clear and concise and honest and truthful and ethical and moral and there's not really anything else left to be said. So we're good. So it really has become like such a mantra of all of ours and Every single one of the people on our team are that way and and we like we are organic desert living and it is a privilege truly. So number two, what's your value add proposition and how and why are you different than the rest of your market? Number three, establish your non-negotiables. So this is a, a again a buzzword that you probably hear in business development a lot, non-negotiables. Non-negotiables are things like I am not willing to do X for Y. Right there, I'm not going to compromise on on this for that in any like no matter what, and be careful because you don't want a list of 15 non-negotiables because I'll tell you what there's not going to be anybody across the table to negotiate with because that's like crazy. So your non-negotiables need to be probably a pretty short list, but they need to have some force behind them and they need to be impactful and it needs to be something that you are 100% confident 
in being able to enforce. And I don't mean enforce like rule with an iron fist. Is it fist? Thumb? Rule with an iron fist? I think it's, I think it's rule with an iron fist. Um, it, it's more of an internal checks and balances for yourself. So again, I don't know that I would publish my non-negotiables, but I know what my non-negotiables are. And some of them are things like I will not negotiate on price. I really, we really don't negotiate on our, on our pricing. And that's because I am well-educated in how many hours it takes our team to execute projects to the level that our clients have come to expect based on the portfolio that we distribute. So based on what you see on Instagram and you see on our portfolio, I know what that costs us and what it takes. So I don't need to negotiate pricing because there's no way that I would take a piece of business or work with a client that doesn't find value in that. It doesn't mean that every client can afford to work with us. And there are also some clients that are like, hey, that's a heck of a deal. I'm super, super happy with that. Great. That's what I wanted to spend. So I don't think that we, you know, we fall outside of what the market demands and requires as well. But I I really don't negotiate on price. Can we be creative and split the project into two phases? Sure. Can we change the scope so that maybe there aren't as many hours required so we can work together? For sure. But that is also one of the characteristics in the clients that we look for, which is open communication, being logical, being understandable, all of those things. So you have to figure out what your non-negotiables are. Another non-negotiable of mine is disrespect. We have worked with clients in the past that like to think that we're like an emotional dumping ground and they can call us and be a jerk to us or hang up on us. That's happened before. Mm -hmm. Someone hung up on Kylie and I called that person moments after they hung up on Kylie and was like, I, I, I'm going to assume that that was a lost signal because I know that you would never, ever hang up on me or Kylie or anyone else on our team because I know that you would not appreciate being hung up on. And I was super serious and sounded just like that, but without so much like pep in my voice. And he apologized profusely and said, I'm so sorry. I I didn't mean to do that, but I did. And, and it was fine. And it was water under the bridge. But I certainly, like, I'm glad he didn't lead with that because that would have not have been good. So any amount of disrespect is not acceptable for for any of us. It makes our jobs shitty and it's it's not fun. Um, a third one of mine is unrealistic expectations. So when you call in as a client, when you call in professionals, if you decide that you know more than me or that your mom knows more than me or that your sister's brother's friend's girlfriend's best friend who once was a designer at wherever knows more than me, um, that's that's not going to work. And that is summed up in unrealistic expectations as well by saying that you want to renovate your entire house for $30,000. Unfortunately, the cost of labor has gone up slightly in the last, well, it went out of that price range like 30 years ago. But um, there's a cost for working with licensed bonded insured contractors. And those are the only people that we work with. So naturally, that wouldn't be a fit. That would be an, a completely unrealistic expectation. And unfortunately, there's no negotiating around that. Like I can't, I can't, money doesn't grow on trees. Nothing is free. I can't make that happen for you. So it's probably best that we 
part ways now because I know for a fact that I am not going to be able to meet your expectation. We also talk about things like, hey, we're totally available via text, via email, give us a call, but be respectful of our time. We work business hours. We It's just as much our job to set our clients up for success. So we have, if we have already given you that information, if you can wait until business hours, that would be appreciated. There are just some things like that that are like common courtesies. We send a design partnership expectations form with the first email, outgoing email to any inquiry that we, that we receive. So we send out a, a very well-written document that basically says, hey, these are the things that we expect in partners because a design partnership is just that. We will likely almost be married for the, the duration of this project. And I want to make sure that you know what we expect. And I want to make sure that we are giving you what you expect. So that has also really helped set the tone of how accountable we want our clients to feel and how accountable we will be for them. So establish your non-negotiables. Number four, you've got to figure out how much you need to make, right? To be able to set appropriate pricing, you got to figure out how much you need to make. So if you're a one person show, we'll call it, you're a freelancer, you're a single designer, you're just starting out, whatever, you need to figure out how much you need to make per year. If you're operating a growing team or it's you and one other person or you're trying to figure out if you can hire your first hire, however that looks for you, you probably need to translate that into how much revenue you need to do and then count yourself as an employee. So then take that number annually. Let's say you need to make $50,000 a year. Divide that by 12 months. That gives you roughly $4,100 a month. So you can go down even further from that. You can go weekly. So then you would take that $4,100 and divide that by four. That leaves you roughly $4,000. Oh, I'm sorry, $1,000 a week to equal $4,4100, whatever a month. You're going to want to put it in terms that you can understand either by where your debts fall. So you need to get paid and you need to pay yourself every two weeks or based on your project kind of calendar. So for us, again, our projects are long. So we don't have like a month that we start a project and end a project in the same month. So you kind of have to have a rolling understanding of what your projects look like and when you're going to collect your fees so that you are not cash poor. That's another big thing. You got to figure out when to collect your fees and when to structure things so that if your if your pro- projects and your process is long, if you collect half up front and half at the end, that's a long time in the middle that you would have to rely on yourself to budget well. Or you can break it up more so that you are getting paid once a month or once every 60 days or however that works for you. So that will really help you. You got to figure out how much you need to make. Once you have figured out how much you need to make, number five is understanding what your largest business actions actually cost you. So four and five work hand in hand. I can tell you there was a moment about, well, probably about two years, two and a half years maybe, that I realized, this is this is the truth, you guys, that I had never actually sat down and figured out how many hours it took me to execute an average project. So that means I literally had no idea what my output was costing me. If you honestly think about that, it's crazy. It's like, take it down to selling cookies. How the heck do you know what the price of your cookies needs to be if you don't know what went into the cookies? The ingredients, the the time, the packaging, all that stuff. And I think when you're in a product-based business, it's a lot easier to figure that out because it's product-based. It's just way easier to manage. You have one product or 10 products and each of them has a cost. And it's, it, 
at least for my brain, it just seems a lot easier to manage versus a service-related business when it's your time and you are billing out services, it is really hard to understand how much that actually costs you. So once I realized that, Vince and I sat down and we took a single room project, a three room project, a renovation, and a build. And we put each of those into kind of their own module, we'll call it. And then within that module, we figured out approximately how many hours it took me, and at this time, I already had one employee. So me and one employee, how long it took us to actually execute these projects from start to finish. And my God, my God, you guys, it was a freaking light bulb. I was like, holy shit. It cost me how much to run a project? And then I literally went immediately back and started looking at contracts that I had written even three months before, and they were not even covering that cost. I'm not kidding. Like, talk about an instant pivot is when you realize that not only were you not covering your costs, I'm sorry, not only were you not making money, but you're not even covering your costs. Like, I think I cried. I think I drank an entire bottle of rosé that night. And I think my stomach hurt for days because I, w- I was just like, holy shit, I cannot believe that I have been. And here I am like thinking, oh, yeah, I'm two years in. I've got an employee. We've got great p- projects like this is a dream. I'm good. Here I am learning as I'm going like I can do this. And then I do that exercise and I'm like, wow. So if you haven't done that in your business, I don't think you need to get all fancy pants. You don't need to create a spreadsheet. I mean, you, you can if, if you've got those skills, but you just need to get out a piece of paper, literally Vince and I got out a piece of paper. I turned it long ways, so it was landscape. I made four columns. I wrote single room, three room, renovate, like large renovation, and new build. And then I started listing the tasks that were required. I started listing the tasks that were required in each column. And I assessed a value for each of those tasks. So I'm on site for a renovation three times a week. I'm on site for a single room twice total. And I would put values assessed for each one of those tasks. And then I added up the total number of hours, multiplied that by my hourly, and that got my cost. It was an absolute game changer. So do that and do that for your your largest revenue driving tasks. So obviously there are there are design combinations between a single room, a three room, a large renovation, and a new build. Not many, but there are some. And as long as you're figuring out 90% or maybe even 80%, that will give you a lot more to go on than no percent. So don't let yourself get too into the minutia of all the iterations of whatever your business is and how many different services or service type, service-related type of tasks that you're billing for. Just try to figure out the biggest ones that are responsible for the most revenue, and that will give you your cost. The other thing that figuring out my cost really helped with was saying no. (laughs) It changes everything. When your friends, your family, your whoever kind of into that non-negotiable, the client that you really shouldn't be working with, but you're thinking about lowering your cost for, as soon as you know what it actually costs you to do business, it is exponentially easier to say, I would love to help you, but I can't. Here's why. And I was totally brutally honest. I know it cost me X amount of dollars and X amount of hours to execute a project like this. Like I know you would expect, I can't do it for less than this. And that leads me to number six, which is establish a cost break even point, a minimum fee, and a reach fee. 
And those are old sales terms, like a minimum and a reach from from a kind of a goal model to where you've got your minimum reach. Your I'm sorry, you've got your minimum goal and then you've got your reach goal. And usually you get paid more for the reach goal. So in business, I have translated that from my corporate background into figuring out the cost break even is pretty much cost. So it's it's cost plus, let's say, 10%, just because that 10% will help you with some of the projects that you didn't account for in, ter- in terms of what services you're offering. And it will also help you with the things that are unknown. Like there are some projects that will inevitably be more hours. And then there, were some pro- there will be some projects that will be less hours. And hopefully you'll end up with that 10% in there somewhere pretty close to right on. Then there's a minimum fee. So that minimum fee for me is cost plus a minimum profit margin. So if you want to run your profit margin at 20%, that would be your minimum cost plus 20% in profit margin. Not not 20% over your cost, but whatever you want your actual profit margin to be. So let's say in a project that you want to be making double what your cost is, that's where you would account for that. Then your reach fee is your maximum profit. So that's that's the type of project that you know is going to be absolutely a, a knockout. Knock it out of the park. This is a great arrangement for me. It's a great arrangement for the client. I can do this. The budget's good. They're willing to pay for X. We can, we can make this happen. So that's kind of your, that's where you want to be 95% of the time. It's likely where you won't end up because, I mean, that would be wonderful. Um, It's not probably all that realistic, but ideally that's where you want to be. You want every single project, just like if you're selling, let's say, a pair of pants. Um, In the retail world, I'm just going to give you a really quick example. In the retail world, there is pricing known as keystone pricing, which basically means you buy the pants for $5, you sell them for $10. If you bought that pair of pants for $5 and you sold it for $10, that to me would probably be your minimum profit. That's like, that's, that's doing well. That's about where you should be. If you bought that pair of pants for $5 and you sold it for $15, that would be your reach. So that's the best case scenario. And in most instances, you're not going to end up there. But you want to know what it is because you always want to be pushing your pricing forward without just doing a price jack up for no reason. But you always want to be understanding where your pricing falls within the market, how it relates to your service offering, and, and how all of that looks. Does that make sense? I think it does. I think that that was a huge game changer for me. Um, number seven, which I don't know. I'm not very good at these like number things and order of importance and all that jazz. And I should just say these are in no particular order. Um, how to set your business up from a branding and social media perspective to have your shit together is like number seven through 10 for me. Um, I'll tell you a very quick lesson. When I had an employee way back when, I had a client after the employee had left the company under not not good terms. She got fired. Um, after she got fired, I had a client tell me, yeah, you know, that just wasn't a good fit for you. And I was like, oh, well, yeah, thanks, Captain Obvious. I know. And she was like, and we were, we're close. And she was like, no, no. I mean, like, I would have never given her a check for $100,000. And I was like, wow, really? And it. I had never had a client be that brutally honest with me. And at that time, she was my biggest client. Like, I had ne- are you kidding me? I had never been given a check for $100,000 for freaking furniture. Like, that, that, that was a dream. And obviously, what she said meant a lot to me. And we have since become really close friends. Um, but she said, she was like, I, I, I could have never given that, that girl a $100,000 check. And I thought the verbiage that she used was interesting. She said that girl and that to me can be like 
maybe and she meant it in no way condescending but I was like that girl huh like wow I could see why you couldn't give that girl a hundred thousand dollars and it really in that moment made me think wow okay I have to make sure that every single person that is representing my business is an extension of me. And she felt comfortable to give me the $100,000. Like we were we were done with her project. Her project was over. We literally revealed like two days before this person got fired. And then I was talking to this client and we had become really close and she knew what had happened. And this conversation ensued. And I was just like, holy epiphany, like light bulb moment. Wow okay, I need to get my shit together. So part of attracting the right clients, and it doesn't have to be complicated, you guys, is having your shit together. Make sure that you're branding at a very basic level, your logo and your Instagram profile and your Facebook page and your phone number and your business card and all that stuff is established. I cannot tell you how many businesses will come to us and say, hey, we provide this service. It would be great to work with you. Here's our website. Here's our phone number. Contact us anytime. We click on the website. It's a landing page for a GoDaddy web address. Like they don't even have their website together. It's like, come on. Again, we are in the digital age. The first thing I'm going to do is Google you. For sure. If I don't find you or your company on Google, that's going to probably not be something that is telling in a good way for you. It's not, it's not gonna be good. So especially when you're endorsing this, you are prompting me to go look for you. You're giving me the information and your website looks like shit or isn't there. It's not good. So you have to, from a branding perspective, and you guys, there are cost-effective ways. Like you do not have to spend $10,000 on on branding. You don't. Etsy is a fantastic place to look for really talented people that are up and coming or frankly very established and they love the Etsy platform probably because they've been on it for a while and they understand how to use it and it serves as a fantastic search engine that isn't as saturated as Google. But get yourself a web designer, a graphic designer, a branding agency, a freelance brand person, someone who can help you look at your brand from an overall perspective, a 40,000 foot level, take out what you don't need, really hone in on things, get you a color palette with CYMK or Pantone colors, and help you bring things together. I see businesses all the time with five different logos floating out there. You should have a few versions of your logo for different uses, but you shouldn't be changing your logo all the time. And and I mean, there are just so many examples of businesses that have a really good person behind them, a really good story, a really good product, but from a brand perspective, they're all over the place. The easiest way to show someone that you have got your shit together, you are aware, you are ready to do business at the level that you you want to do and you want to attract the right clients is visually with clean, concise branding. It is it is a game changer. And truly, from an investment standpoint on a business, a relatively approachable thing that you can do. Um, social media, the same thing. Make sure that your social media handles are consistent. Make sure that you don't have a bunch of weird characters in there. Make sure that you're posting things that are relevant to your business. I can tell you from personal experience, it's hard running a persona, we'll call it, and a business under the same umbrella. So at Lifestyle Co. for the longest time was our main business page, but I ran it and I happened to be a very vocal person and I wanted to share about my family and and my life and what I was wearing and where I was traveling and all that. And it, it took a lot of thought to be able to do that in a way that wasn't irrelevant, annoying, out of place. So if you're going to do that, you have to make sure that you have a pretty strong knack or you've hired someone who can do that for you so that you're not confusing your audience. It is super important. Again, in a lot of instances, especially with creative businesses, 
Every single person that's engaging and interacting with your business is a potential client. For me, it can take years before clients hire us. I cannot tell you how many inquiries we get where someone is like, I've been a, I've been watching you. They even use that verbiage, which is really funny. I've been watching you for five years and I've been dreaming of the time that I can work with you. And now I finally bought my house and I'm so excited and I've saved up or, or I just had a status change and we sold our last house and now we've got the funds to be able to put a ton of, you know, um, reconstruction into this one or, or whatever that story is for them. They've been seeing what we're doing for a long time. And while you have to be authentic through your journey, you can clean things up and make them really tidy and really clear and really consistent really easily. And you want any outfacing marketing to endorse that. So start with social media and definitely make sure that that, that goes into your branding for sure. P.S. We're at 55 minutes. Remember when I first started this thing oh, four, almost four episodes ago and I told you that I was really going to try to keep these episodes 45 minutes? What is my deal? It's like I can't get in under an hour. I just have so much to tell you guys. Oh, I hope you're still with me. The last thing I want to talk about, and I don't even know what freaking number we're on. I think I said the last one was like 7 through 10. We'll call this 11. We'll call this 10. Whatever. Is be okay with business that walks. So in attracting the right clients, you have to be okay, as I mentioned earlier, enforcing your non-negotiables and being confident that the business that you're turning down is okay and is worth it. You have to learn how to say no and you have to be okay with the business that walks. You have to be charming and kind about it. When they walk, you got to be okay with it. And you have to authentically and transparently say, hey, I totally understand. Thank you for your time. Best of luck. I hope we cross paths again. I promise you, I'm just going to say this because this is really true in, in our world. For every five people, let's say, maybe it's more like eight because it doesn't happen all the time. But for every, let's call it eight people that walk or that say we're too expensive, we're not expensive enough, we're too organic desert living, we're not organic desert living enough, we're not available tomorrow when they want us, we're too available, whatever the situation is, whatever it's not working out. For every eight people that walk that I'm totally okay with, one of them comes back. One of them will say, gosh, it might even be more than one in eight, honestly, now that I'm thinking about it. They will say, hey, I went with another designer, didn't work out. Or, hey, I know I was unrealistic. Things have changed for me. Let's talk now. Or, hey, I finally got my wife on board. Or, you know, whatever, however that works. For, for, for some of those people that walk, they come back. And that is why, and if not now, if not for that same project, later. We've had clients who have worked with other designers and then on their next project, they come back and they're like, hey, I wanna work with you now. And vice versa. I had a client recently who went with another design team over us and I was kind of sad. I was, I was like, oh my gosh, like why, I wonder why they, and they didn't even give us a chance to bid. Like we, they didn't even tell us. I saw this beautiful finished product on her Facebook page and I was like, oh my God, I'm dying inside. And I, I, I text her and I was like, I'm dying inside. Like, I'm happy you're happy, but why do we get the chance and she just basically wrote me and was like hey you know it's all good I wanted to go in a different direction nothing against you guys these people came into my my life at the right time and and it worked out and although I was bummed because I loved working with them I totally understood it and it was like okay no problem and maybe those people will come back to us next time so I think there needs to be a serious level of commitment and grace that you have to manage yourself really or you have to teach whoever is doing your business inquiries and your your client acquisition and, and kind of intake, you have to teach them to be incredibly kind and patient and graceful because truly, 
all that business that that walks, there is no telling if it will come back. There is no telling that they might be making those decisions a lot of times for reasons that have nothing to do with you. That was another big lesson. I used to internalize everything. I used to feel like it was because of me. It was because of something I did or something I didn't do. And I think that that is really common in a highly accountable person. I'm a really self-reflective person. When there's conflict in my life, I am the first person. I'm like, shit, what did I do? How could I have done this better? What, you know, like, did I do something to set us all up for that? Did I put someone in the position to where they didn't have a choice? Like, I'm constantly looking at myself and my actions. So for those highly accountable people out there, really self-reflective people, you want to internalize everything. And you want to own everything because you think that that's the best way to cope. And in business, specifically when you're in a creative business and you are are marketing and selling a service, especially one that comes at a luxury price, which for me, interior design does, a lot of photography does. There's a lot of services out there that are truly a luxury. There are a lot of times when a client, it won't work out with a client and you will have put time and effort into it. And a lot of those times it has nothing to do with you. And, and a lot of those times the client can't be totally transparent with what it has to do with. They don't know you well enough. You've never worked together. They don't, you know, they're, for whatever reason, they don't want to share that with you. And that's totally their deal and completely okay. So I can tell you the first one's the hardest. It gets easier after that. And in addition to business that walks away from you because you're too expensive, you're too whatever, whatever, you also have to be okay with the business that you turn down. I can tell you right now, we refer about 90% of the inquiries that we get. And that alone is not normal, I don't think, and a huge blessing. And and that's a great position to be in. So I recognize that. And it wasn't always that way. But it has been that way for a long time. Because a long time ago, I decided that I'm going to be okay with the business that I turned down, as long as I'm turning it down for a valid reason. Like, you should be able to easily say this is why this business didn't work out. So for me, our director of ops, Amy, is who who manage all, manages all of our new client intake. And she's pretty much the one who decides whether we can take a consultation with said inquiry. And we go through them all every single week. And she will tell me, eh, this is why it's not a good fit. Eh, this is why this one's not a good fit. This is why this one is. This is, you know, I'm on the fence about this one. What do you think? And so we talk through all of that. So it should be pretty easily identifiable. I am in no way saying, like, turn everybody down who doesn't, who can't meet all 25 of your dream client requirements. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is make sure that you are steadfast in recognizing what you need to perform at the level that you should command when you're charging what you're charging, whatever you're charging, if if that makes sense. I really think it does. I also found in my research, just one more thing to mention before we get into our questions and close the show. In my research, I saw, and I was looking on Pinterest and Instagram, I saw a ton of graphics out there that were like, how to find clients that want to spend more money, how to find clients with bigger budgets. And I don't know, why I did not like that one bit. Like that bothered me. We, of course, bigger budgets give you options, but I guess I just don't like the idea of like equating a great experience to a bigger budget because that's totally untrue. I can only speak about design, but I would imagine it's probably pretty true in other creative businesses or freelance businesses as well. Like we do plenty of projects that are single room projects. Let's say we're doing a nursery for someone or a playroom or a kid's room or a master bedroom or just one single room. And their project, their bu- their project budget is approachable. It's realistic. Could we spend more? Sure. Do we need to spend more to get a beautiful outcome that is organic desert living that is 
right in line with our portfolio? No. So I just don't like the idea of people out there marketing almost saying that like, once you get clients with big budgets, that's like the, you know, the motherland. Yes, it is helpful because you have more options. Sure. And a, a healthy mix is good. But I definitely don't think that you should like skip all the people with regular budgets because there are a few people with big budgets. Um, at least that's not the way I've built my business. I, I, like I said, options are good. The bigger the budget, the more options you have. But that definitely doesn't mean that the approachable budgets are worth nothing and that you shouldn't be trying to hone your craft to attract those clients too because those people have are, are great people for sure, just like you and I. And I never want to get to a point where I'm only working with people that have these huge budgets and I can't work with anybody else because all the everybody else is, is, is me in my in my actual life. And I feel like both types of projects and every iteration of type of project in between has a lot of validity and a lot of reward and a beautiful creative purpose and opportunity. And I just want to make sure that we're not marketing. I don't want your brain thinking, oh, I have to get to the big the big budgets, the people that want to spend more money. Because it's not the motherland. It's really not. Yes, it's, it, it provides options. But there are, is also a territory that comes with that that maybe we'll get into at some point. But a healthy mix is what you want to go for. You want, you want your clients and your projects that are going to push you to the next level of design or photography or whatever. But you also want to make sure that you can work on projects with real people that that have realistic budgets and there is a lot of happiness right in between in that little sweet spot, which is where I think we are. And I'm, I'm really thankful for that. Okay. End of the show. Questions. I'm so excited. I think you guys are liking this. Two of the people that I answered their questions last episode wrote me on Instagram and they were like, hey, you answered my question. Thank you so much. So I loved that. I think I may have totally butchered one of their names. So I apologize in advance if I'm butchering your name, but I am so happy that you guys are listening and and hearing your questions. And I hope that I'm able to give you a better answer than I can sometimes on Instagram. So this past weekend, I put out a question sticker and I haven't gotten to answer any of those yet. So I'm going to do that. And I'm also going to read some here Uh, right now to close the show. But it also made me think. So I answer every single direct message, every single one. And I am realizing now more than ever that that is not a common thing. And I just started doing it probably a couple years ago now because I really felt like if someone took the time to answer to, I'm sorry, if someone took the time to write me, I wanted to take the time to write them back. And comments are public, right? Everyone can see every answer. And so I think people just naturally ask more direct questions in direct messages, hence maybe the reason they're called direct messages. So I started thinking, and I really want you guys to tell me how you feel about this in the DMs at, at the end of the show. How do you feel about between my profile at Lifestyle Co. and the shop profile, if every day we put up like a question sticker that you could just always know that there was always an opportunity to ask questions and then we would answer them. So instead of just being DMs, maybe we make that question sticker about a certain topic every day, or let's say that it's always design questions. So I think one of the major challenges about design is everyone always has a design question and everyone isn't best friends with a me. So all of my best friends have my phone number and they'll text me and they'll ask me questions and of course I give them answers. And I think a lot of people know designers, but I am also coming to realize that every designer isn't as willing to answer questions, which I understand both sides. So I'm not trying to piss off the entire design community by saying that you should give away free advice because that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is 
part of the reason why I have the business that I have is because of the following that we have established and all of you guys out there. And I want to make sure that I'm serving you in the same way that you serve me, which is with support. And I'm wondering if I, if you knew that you could always come to the Lifestyle Company profile and there would always be a place there that you could ask a question and know it would be answered, let's say within 48 hours. Would you like that? I literally just thought of this. I don't think anyone else is doing it. So I wanted to put that out there. So tell me, because I definitely want to know if you guys feel like that would be good, that you pretty much always knew that you had like free design advice and you would obviously have to keep it somewhat approachable. Like I can't give you a design plan over questions on Instagram, but if you have a very basic question about like, hey, what do you think about X? Should I put a knob here? Should I hang my curtains at this height? Here's a picture, you know, however that that works. If you knew that between me, Kylie or Rachel, one of us could get back to your question within 48 hours and answer it on social, would you like that? is kind of where I'm going. So that being said, we have some really, really, really good questions. And I, gosh, I wish I could read every single one of them. But one of the ones that I was most excited about getting um, actually came over in a direct message this today as I've been recording. And I thought it was really worth a read. So I'm going to read it to you. Hi, so this is entirely out of curiosity, not a, quote, why are you discriminating against people stance? And maybe this could be a podcast question. I didn't see anywhere specifically to submit those, hoping this is the right place. But I was a little surprised to see a design or design-related degree as a must-have for your new position. When you state in your podcast, I believe it was at the end of episode two, that you don't believe a design degree is required to break out in the field and you don't know how you could ever require one as you yourself do not have one. And I cl- it clearly didn't stop you from hard work and success. So I'm wondering, with all of that said, why a degree is required for your design associate position? And this came from, it's Rebecca Becker. And I am so happy, one, I am more than happy to answer like a controversial question for you. For sure, I'll give you my authentic, transparent answer if you ask it in a kind way. If you don't ask it in a kind way, I'll probably respond because I respond to everyone. But, you know, consider like what how you put it out there. If you ask it in a nice, conversational, kind way, I'm 100% going to respond. And this really wasn't even like it's a fine question to ask, but she, you could tell that she was kind of treading lightly and she she definitely wanted my answer. So my answer was... It's a great question. The re- and I love that. I love that you guys are catching these these types of kind of oh gosh, what's the word? Like I love that you guys are catching the fact that and you're holding me accountable. You're saying that hey, this is what you're saying it might not be what you're doing and I want to know why. So I think it's really important to address this. When we were getting the requirements together for our design associate position that we're hiring for right now, we actually talked about this in the office. And I was like, man, you know, should we require a degree? Should we not? I do think I can 100% teach SketchUp and AutoCAD, but I can't teach street smarts and character and high moral standards and and a, a God-given talent for design. Like, I can't teach that, you know? And we, we talked about it collectively as a group. And I the, the answer why this particular position requires a degree or a design-related degree is because of the talent that we have in the office right now. So everyone around me has a degree. I think making it through college in, a desi- in design or any field, frankly, is an absolute 
huge accomplishment, takes a lot of dedication and a lot of perseverance and should be rewarded. And it's it's a challenge. It's challenging. And it's a challenge that I failed. And because everyone else in our office has a degree and there's a price to that, specifically student loans, to keep the playing field even and to make sure that everyone is is continuing to perform at the level that we we need them to, again, for this position right here, right now, a degree is required. And mo- uh, most of that came from the team. Everyone around me, like I said, has degrees. And they all felt like, you know what, there, there needs to be somebody in here who was in college, who made it through, and who has those skills. There's a lot of things that you learn in college that, that you don't learn out- outside of it. And for me, I've got 10 years on most of these people. So there's a lot of street smarts in those 10 years too. And so for that, for that reason, this, this particular position right here right now requires a degree. Specifically because of who who this position is supporting as well. Um, but I don't think a design degree or a degree is required to break into the industry. You know where you would start if you didn't have a degree is an intern position or a design assistant position. Remember, this is a design associate position. So it is a design position. It's not an assistant. It's not learning the ropes. It's I need you to be able to perform and, and have a basic understanding of what we're doing when you get in here. So I don't think that you need one to break into the industry, but this particular position right here, right now for our company, based on what else we have in our office, requires one. She took that information really well. She said, thank you so much. It's totally understandable. It makes perfect sense. It's everything I would expect you to say, so thank you. So I really liked that, and I liked that I could expand on that here. Okay, so on to a design-related question. This is from at Rosenberry. Rugs under a bed, dot, 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 why necessary? Rugs under a bed, I think it's a personal choice, but for me, if you have a hard floor, a rug under a bed in a bedroom just really helps give us one, an additional upholstery opportunity because in a bedroom, you get bedding pretty much and that's it. And in panels, of course, so that's additional upholstery, but it gives us another opportunity for additional soft textiles. Number two it grounds the room. It really can help you take an oversized room and make it feel a little smaller, a little more petite, which is what you want. You want everything centered around the bed and kind of focused around the bed in a bedroom or make it feel bigger. If it's a small room, you can kind of help draw some length out into the wall space if you can use a bigger footprint with a rug in a room. I also think when you've got a hard floor, sometimes it's nice to kind of roll out of bed and put your feet down on something soft. That's typically what we hear from clients. And then if you have a carpet and you're putting a rug on top of carpet, that's a tricky one because then you need to make sure that the rug is flat for the most part. You've got kind of a flat weave so that it doesn't just add more chunk, like chunk carpet on chunk chunk rug. That's no good. These are highly, highly technical design terms, by the way, you guys. So, I mean, for me, rug under a bed, always necessary. So that that's my answer on that one. Last question is from nmill11. Where do you see your company in the next five years? That is always a good question and sort of ever-changing around here. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Again, am I supposed to be saying this stuff like if I'm a future business coach? I don't know. Um, I feel like that's supposed to have like a really strong answer. But I mean, what you say now, there's no freaking chance that all that stuff is going to come to fruition in five years because stuff just changes. And a lot of times it's way better than you could have ever imagined it or manifested it or built it or planned it or any of that. So that's where I'm going with that. But where do I see our company in five years? Um, 
We are definitely loving retail, so we'll definitely stay in the retail game. I don't know how that will happen. We will, of course, still be doing design and amazing projects and and continuing to reinvent our version of Organic Desert Living. I also think that we'll be developing. So now we design spec builds for builders. And sometimes the builder is the developer or client, and sometimes the builder is the builder for a developer or client. So I think that we will get into that game a little bit more. I would really like to start developing a little bit more in in the East Valley. So for those of you who are familiar with Arizona, in kind of where I live, like that Gilbert um, Chandler kind of area. But I don't know, I would also love to develop like a really beautiful Spanish modern or a Haver home. Oh, I would love to. Oh my gosh, the dreaming. Um, so I think we'll I think we'll definitely get into development. I definitely have strong in- interest in um, business coaching. I have really strong interest in helping other businesses with digital marketing, specifically design businesses. I want to write a book, which I don't think I have been shy about telling you guys. I hope the podcast is still going strong. Would you guys die if in five years we're five seasons in and I've recorded like 75 episodes. Oh my God. Would that just be insane? It might happen. It really might happen. Um, And I also want to speak more. I want to help people. I want to help people. I want to help people have their version of what the lifestyle company means to me, to them. It has been an absolute blessing. It is, I, I have more love, respect, and opportunity for my life and how, how, things have ended up for me that I could ever truly explain or or give gratitude to. And I just would love if I can help to make other people have the confidence and, and power and knowledge to make that happen for themselves. So five years, I don't know where I'll be. Definitely still designing. That's that's for sure. And and probably a whole lot of other really cool stuff in between there. I'll tell you what there won't be is any more babies. I ran across one of those questions too over the weekend. Are you guys going to have any more kids? Hell no. We're done with the kids. That's it for episode four. This might be the longest episode. Do you guys want me to make it shorter? Cut it down? I don't know. Tell me in the DMs. I'll talk to y'all soon. Thanks for listening. Kristen responds to every direct message on Instagram. So if you've got something to say, want to be a guest, or have episode ideas, get her at Lifestyled Co. Need some organic desert living for yourself? The Lifestyled Company Shop is waiting for you online at www.lifestyledcoshop.com, at the brick and mortar location in downtown Gilbert, or on Instagram at Lifestyled Co. Shop. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes and Spotify.